Today, it is not an unusual or even controversial thing to say you believe in human rights. In fact, seemingly everyone does. How could you not be in favor of human rights? Are you some kind of monster? But when did this term come into vogue? We all use it now, but for most of recorded history, the phrase human rights was not deliberately uttered or written by many thinkers, though the concepts and ideas behind them were developed and grappled with, of course. Today, I will be chatting about a hero of mine, Bartolomé de las Casas, one of the first people ever to say derechos humanos, or in English, human rights. He made a name for himself in the 16th century as an advocate of the rights of the Amerindians. He spent his life condemning the brutal imperialism of the Spaniards, and over time he grew more radical, arguing that all forms of slavery were a moral evil, 200 years before the abolitionist movement ever even gained traction. I think there is a huge amount we can learn both politically and personally from Las Casas. On the political end, he articulated a philosophy that defended the dignity and rights of all peoples. By the end of his life, he ardently believed all of mankind is one. Every person, regardless of religion, race, or culture, is entitled to an equal and identical right to freedom. But on a more personal level, I believe he is an inspiring figure of humility and devotion. He spent the majority of his life atoning for his past wrongs and fighting for the rights of others. And this is important because history at times can be a disgusting and endless list of the cruelest, greediest, and worst people who ever lorded over others. They took what they wanted and left destruction wherever they went, and worse yet, they were often warlords, kings, and dictators, and they're praised as the great men of history. Bartolomé de las Casas, on the other hand, represents the humane side of history, a person who had no interest in dominating others. He didn't fight for power or wealth. Instead, he dedicated himself to the selfless cause of fighting for the freedom of others. But I'm getting just a little ahead of myself, so let's start from the very beginning. Bartolomé de las Casas was born on November 11th, 1484, into a small noble family in Seville, in Spain. It is possible that his family descended from conversos, Jewish people who had converted to Christianity. 1492 was a momentous year for Spain. After hundreds of years of fighting, starting in the 8th century, the Spaniards accomplished their goal of driving out Muslim Moors of the Iberian Peninsula. In the same year, Christopher Columbus discovered the New World, America. By 1493, when Columbus returned to Spain, he triumphantly toured throughout the country, making his way towards King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. When Columbus passed through Seville, an eight-year-old Las Casas caught his first ever glimpse of an Amerindian, specifically a captured Taino Indian in the Caribbean that Columbus had hauled back against their will. The Tainos were unlike anything people of Seville had ever seen before in their lives. They wore strange feathers and ornaments made of gold and fishbone. All of a sudden, the provincialism and relative insularity of the medieval world was replaced by a new era of possibilities through seafaring. Columbus represented this new way of life, one defined by exploration, discovery, and trade. Initially, Columbus described the Amer Indians as a meek and gentle people receptive to the Christian faith. Sounds good. But as contact with the Amer Indians increased, their image took a dramatic shift. Many walked around naked and took part in polygamous marriages, shocking the Christian sensibilities of the Spanish. But the Amer Indians were not just thought of as alien, but also vicious. Some groups like the Caribs practiced cannibalism, while others performed elaborate rituals of human sacrifice. With the New World's abundant wealth up for the taking, the Spanish began to rationalize why it was morally acceptable to conquer and subjugate the Amer Indians for their supposed lack of morality and rationality. Pope Alexander VI published a papal bull entitled Intercatera, which granted the Spanish monarchy dominion over large tracts of the New World. The Pope wrote that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. Furthermore, he solidified the Spanish kingdom's claim over the New World, writing, We make, appoint, and depute you and your said heirs and successors, lords of them, with full and free power, authority, and jurisdiction of every kind. 
Thus, the Spaniards could confidently say that their conquest had the backing of God's representative on earth, the Pope of all people. By 1510, the Scotsman John Major theorized that the American Indians were slaves by nature. He took the term from Aristotle, who described a natural slave as a person who participates in reason only to the extent of perceiving it, but does not have it. The American Indians' practice of cannibalism, polygamy, and human sacrifice was apparently evidence that they could not understand or interpret natural law. Major explained that the American Indians live in a bestial manner, wherefore the first person to conquer them justly rules over them. Because these people, as it is evident, are slaves by nature. Suffice to say, a large number of Europeans viewed the American Indians as backward savages who had to be ruled over by a superior culture for their own good, lest they descend into further barbarism. Without a proper sense of morality and rationality, the Spanish believed it was their duty to go across the sea and to guide and protect the American Indians, who were little more than adults with the minds of children, according to one observer. But the conquest of the New World by the Spanish also had an overtly religious angle. After fighting against the Moors for so long, the Spanish had kind of developed a vocabulary of religious warfare, talking about punishing infidels and fighting for Christ. Much of the Spanish monarchy's legitimacy actually stemmed from their image as a protector of the Christian faith against infidels. The Spanish thought of their war against the Muslim Moors not as a war over land and resources, but over true faith and heresy. The language of punishing so-called infidels was firmly established. The forced conversions of Muslims and Jewish people were a common occurrence in Spain during this time. When the Spaniards eventually reached the New World, they brought with them this rationale for punishing infidels, allowing them to enact brutal slaughter, slavery, rapine, all in the name of God. Las Casas had ties to Columbus. His uncle actually helped fund the Nina and the Pinta, while his father had joined Columbus's second voyage. When Las Casas' father returned to Spain in 1499, he gave his son an Amerindian slave that Columbus had gifted him. However, Las Casas did not hold this new slave for very long. Queen Isabella was furious with Columbus for enslaving the people she thought of as her new subjects. She commanded slave owners to return American Indians to their homes, threatening death if they disobeyed. After completing his studies in the school of San Miguel in 1502 at the age of 19, accompanying his father, Las Casas set sail for the New World on the expedition of Nicolas de Ovando. He arrived in Santo Domingo, the capital of the Spanish colony, Española. While present, Las Casas became a slave owner under the institution of encomienda. Under this system, American Indians were forced to work on plantations or in mines. Their bodies and labor were awarded to settlers who were expected to protect and instruct their slaves in the way of Christian faith. Slaves were often kept in check by whips, canes, and dogs that would chase and maul them if they attempted to run. American Indians were often marched miles away from their homes, worked to the point of exhaustion, and beaten viciously. Women were overworked and underfed, and babies were born in a malnourished state with no breast milk for nourishment. Women were forced to abort their children out of desperation, and some even drowned their babies. In some places, entire generations were wiped out. To replace their human livestock, settlers went out in military expeditions and slave raids. And of course, Las Casas took part in these horrific events, where he saw many acts of brutality and took part in many as well. Many settlers were driven almost to the point of madness in their pursuit for wealth. Las Casas witnessed firsthand the endless bloody slaughters. Later, he would describe the Spaniards like wolves, tigers, and lions, which had been starving for many days, killing indiscriminately without compassion or remorse. Though at the time, like many others, Las Casas did not question the legitimacy of conquest. After all, European theologians and jurists alike, for over a millennia, had no issue embracing the peculiar institution of slavery. Las Casas grew up in Seville, where scholars have estimated that 10% of the population were slaves. He was used to this. Slavery was accepted, widespread, and often unquestioned by Europeans. 
especially those who benefited from it. Las Casas returned to Spain in 1506 and was then ordained as a priest in Rome by 1507. He then continued his training and studies in Salamanca, eventually returned to the New World, where he was the first ordained Catholic priest. When he performed his first Mass in 1510, around the same time, friars from the Dominican Order arrived in Santo Domingo. The Dominicans were deeply disturbed by the bloodshed and oppression that their fellow men had unleashed upon the Amer Indians. The small group of Dominicans decided that their consciences would not allow them to idly stand by. On the fourth Sunday of Advent, Father Antonio de Montesinos, an event with many important officials and a large audience in attendance, delivered his sermon condemning slavery and imperialism in no unclear terms. Montesinos explained the grave spiritual consequences of the settlers' actions. He explained that they are all in mortal sin and live and die in it because of the cruelty and tyranny they practice among these innocent peoples. Pleading with the settlers, he asked, Are these people not men? Do they not have rational souls? With what right do you keep them in servitude? With what authority have you waged these detestable wars against these peoples who live peacefully in their own lands? Las Casas was an eyewitness to this sermon, but did not immediately change his mind. He still held on to numerous slaves, bolstering his wealth like many others, forcing them to toil in plantations or mine for gold. Wealthy slave owners were appalled by Montesinos, and royal representatives were disgusted by the Dominicans, who now refused to give confession to anyone who owned slaves. Even Las Casas, a fellow man of God, was denied confession for holding slaves. And because of it, Las Casas began to fear for his soul. Unable to absolve himself of sin, he began to worry about his fate in the afterlife, whether he would arrive at the pearly gates of heaven or be punished for the slaves he captured in the fires of hell. After all, Las Casas captured slaves, helped out in expeditions, and used slaves to extract wealth at the cost of others' blood, sweat, and tears. In 1512, Las Casas aided in quelling natives rebelling against settlers, and for his efforts, he was awarded more slaves. But the scale of violence he saw deeply impacted his psyche. Las Casas recounts a story while in Cuba of a chieftain who was finally caught after running away from settlers. He was tied to a stake to be burned. Las Casas observed a Franciscan friar begging to baptize him so he could die a Christian and go to heaven. The friar told him all about heaven. But then the chieftain asked, are there Christians in heaven? After the friar said yes, the chieftain said, well, I don't want to go where Spaniards go. So brutal was their reputation that the natives wouldn't even follow them into heaven. Witnessing massacre after massacre wore down Las Casas as he realized the great gulf between Christian thinking and the reality of how Christians were acting. While studying and praying one day, he encountered a biblical passage that reads, Unclean is the offering sacrificed by an oppressor. Such mockeries of the unjust are not pleasing to God. Though other factors contributed, this passage made Las Casas almost instantly realize his soul was not fit for heaven. If he did not change his ways, he would be damned to an eternity in hell. Las Casas gave up his slaves and stolen lands, encouraging others to do the same. He then dedicated the rest of his life to atone for his past sins by fighting on behalf of the rights and dignity of the Amerindian peoples. From this point on, Las Casas emphatically refused to give a confession to any person who owned slaves. He simply argued, you cannot be saved while still holding Indians. Las Casas decided the best way to help the Amerindian people was to appeal directly to King Ferdinand himself. And by 1515, he crossed the Atlantic yet again to do so. Over the course of his life, Las Casas would travel back and forth across the Atlantic numerous times and to countries like Venezuela, Panama, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Mexico. 
who's easily one of the most well-traveled men in the world at the time. Back in Spain for the first time in 12 years, he gained the necessary documents to meet with the king, thanks to the Archbishop of Seville, who was impressed by his integrity. But even still, it would be a hard debate. The king held more slaves than anyone else in the kingdom, and many of his officials also held slaves or greatly benefited from the conquest of the New World. Though the king listened to Las Casas, he was sickly and near death, and his concerns simply lay elsewhere. When King Ferdinand eventually died, his son Charles succeeded him, becoming one of the most powerful monarchs in Europe thanks to advantageous marriages. The young Charles was not capable of ruling due to his age, so two regents were appointed until he matured. Las Casas wasted no time preparing extensively to discuss with them the viciousness and cruelty happening across the sea. For the two regents he composed a memorial of remedies for the Indies in 1516, where he argued that Ecomienda should be abolished and Indians ought to live in self-governing towns while paying tribute to the king as his vassals. Las Casas also affirmed that the American Indians are free human beings and ought to be treated as both human and free. The Las Casas oddly argued that American Indians' suffering could be relieved by replacing the Ecomienda with African slaves, and older and wiser Las Casas would later emphatically recount this position and feel terrible for ever saying it. Las Casas would eventually say, all slavery was wrong, regardless of race. He also displayed a deep sorrow for his past views, realizing his errors. Las Casas convinced the regions to set up an independent commission to evaluate the system of Ecomienda. Las Casas was appointed also as the first ever protector of the Indians in 1516. Along with a group from the Order of St. Jerome, Las Casas returned to the New World to implement his reforms. However, the entrenched interests of slave owners dulled the members of St. Jerome's spirit for reform. It was made abundantly clear that any sort of reform affecting the lucrative system of slavery would result in rebellion. Las Casas, furious and disappointed, condemned royal officials who held slaves, saying that they are murderers and deserve to die. Many slave owners were feared the reforming tendencies of Las Casas, and they decided to work their slaves almost to death to extract the maximum amount of gold they could before their way of life was undermined. But the reality was, Las Casas was a lone, isolated voice. He couldn't really enact much change, and by 1517, Las Casas was licking his wounds, returning to Spain. Through skillful persuasion and lobbying, after three years, Las Casas convinced King Charles to grant him permission to found settlements located in modern-day Venezuela. Las Casas intended to establish settlements where settlers and natives lived alongside one another, and no settlers were granted the privilege of owning another person. Only preachers would be permitted to travel into the American Indian territories to avoid temptation or exploitation. Although without the lucrative benefits of slavery, money for these colonies was hard to raise, Las Casas eventually gathered enough funds to start his venture thanks to his brother-in-law. While in Venezuela, Las Casas attempted to establish a process of peacefully converting the natives with persuasion, not violence. This sounds all well and good, but his plan deteriorated when Spanish providers attacked the American Indians, leading many to distrust Las Casas. After years of being slaughtered by the Spaniards, the American Indians found it hard to trust anyone for across the Atlantic. The native Caribs attacked Las Casas' settlement, which eventually collapsed. And the failure of Las Casas' efforts strengthened many of the king's advisors' belief that the only way to live alongside the natives was to subjugate them by force. Pressed by the combination of greed and apathy from his fellow Spaniards, Las Casas retreated and joined the Dominican order at Santo Domingo, starting as a novice in 1522 and becoming a friar a year later. Over the next 10 years, Las Casas plunged himself into extensively studying the Dominican curriculum of scripture, the church fathers, ancient philosophy, canon law, and scholastic philosophy. Las Casas was greatly influenced by the writings of the church father Thomas Aquinas, a proponent of natural law and a giant of both theological and philosophical thought. 
1527, Las Casas began work on his History of the Indies, a book he would edit, tweak, and add material to for the next 30 years until its final version in 1561. In this book, Las Casas recounted many of the horrors he saw, while also condemning his former advocacy of replacing Indian slaves with black slaves. Making him virtually the only European to oppose black slavery in the 16th century. That's quite forward thinking for a person who came 200 years before the abolitionist movement even started. During his decade of missionary work and scholarly research, Charles, the King of Spain, was elected as Holy Roman Emperor, making him now Charles I in Spain and Charles V in Germany. He now held one of the largest empires in human history, and the Spanish attitude adapted to this new political reality with an increased zeal for an extensive empire. With a small army of 550 men, Hernán Cortés brought about the destruction of the Aztec Empire, of course with some help from General Smallpox, that killed millions of natives whose immune systems had no defense against the European disease. In 1534, Francisco Pizarro followed in his footsteps, conquering the Incas by force also. Las Casas and many other members of religious orders traveled to the mainland to preach the Christian faith in 1536. The Franciscan order believed the most efficient way to convert the natives was simply to baptize them en masse with little to no instruction. In 1537, Las Casas wrote a book entitled The Only Method of Attracting People to the True Faith, where he refuted the idea that the Amerindians could be converted by force. Sounding very much like a classical liberal in his hatred for conflict, Las Casas would write, War fills every place with highwaymen, thieves, ravishers, fires, and murderers. And he pondered, what is war but general murder and robbery among many? For Las Casas, the only way to convert people was appealing to their reason and persuade them as rational and equal beings worthy of respect. Freedom exists not for Las Casas because simply humans want to be free and it's nice. It's a fundamental part of their nature as human beings. God gave every person the gift of free choice, leaving each person to decide their own fate. Influenced by Las Casas' sound arguments, the Pope published a papal bull, Sublimus Deus, in the same year, saying that the Amerindians were rational beings capable of receiving the Christian faith willingly by learning instead of dunking some confused people's heads into water, then saying they'll go to heaven when they die. But Las Casas' book was not simply a philosophical treatise, it was a guide to action. To avoid settlers' interference, Las Casas went deep into Guatemala, where there were no colonies at all. But Las Casas was successful in converting many of the natives through persuasion and argumentation. What was once dubbed the land of war started to be called Verapaz, meaning true peace. Las Casas eventually left Guatemala to recruit more Dominican friars for missionary work. After a year in Mexico, Las Casas once again braved the Atlantic, returning to Spain for the first time in nearly 20 years. While Las Casas' official reason for being in Spain was to recruit more friars, he seized the opportunity to lobby for the Spanish King Charles, who was no longer a boy, but a fully grown man, at the head of one of the most powerful states in the world. The institution of encomienda, synonymous with slavery, had been abolished in 1523, but quickly reversed in 1526 after royal officials protested vested interests and all that. Las Casas wanted to firmly abolish Ecomienda and the slavery that followed from it once and for all. He put immense pressure on the Cardinal Garcia de Loesa, who had no affection for Las Casas whatsoever, and the Council of the Indies that acted as the governing body for the New World Colonies. By 1542, Las Casas called a special council to assemble at the city of Valladolid to examine Las Casas' arguments and issue appropriate laws in response. Las Casas' predominant strategy was to overwhelm the council with bottomless amounts of evidence of the brutal and cruel mistreatment of the Amerindians. 
For effectively weeks, Las Casas entered the meetings and read for hours and hours his memorial of atrocities as his aides distributed piles of documents affirming what Las Casas had just said. He described in horrific detail how the Amerindians Indians were tortured, raped, killed and enslaved for hours and hours on end, day after day, week after week. He constantly urges listeners to meet the standards expected from a good Christian by citing scripture, but he also reminded them of the fiery torment of hell that would await them if they sat by apathetically. To atone for these atrocities, Las Casas proposed abolishing the system of encomienda, eliminating slavery, restoring the freedom of currently held slaves, allowing American Indians to rule over their own lands, and acknowledging that conquest was not only illegal, but fundamentally immoral. Observers were stunned by his stories and impressed by the unparalleled passion he had. King Charles even sat in on some of the sessions in shock at the brutality that had been done in his kingdom's name. Convinced, Charles issued the new laws of 1542 that aimed to eliminate slavery, prohibit wars of conquest, and affirm the dignity of the Amerindians as subjects of the Spanish crown. It was a colossal shift in the relationship between settlers and natives. The system of encomienda was to be phased out by reverting slaves to the crown after the death of their owner. This was meant to phase out slavery over time, but Las Casas did not think that these laws went far enough, as numerous slaves would die in slavery. But at least it was a step in the right direction. Or so Las Casas thought. In 1542, Las Casas was appointed as Bishop of Chiapa in Mexico, where he planned to replicate his success in peacefully converting natives and enforcing the new laws. When Las Casas returned to the New World, he was hated by the bitter slave owners who saw him as a thief of their fortune. But words on a page don't always translate into laws and reality. Many slave owners rioted, and with many public officials owning slaves, the laws were simply not enforced. Las Casas became a figure of opprobrium, being awarded for his integrity with death threats from the settlers. By 1545, after three years, the new laws were revoked to strengthen the system of encomienda, infuriating Las Casas, as slavery would survive. While serving as Bishop of Chiapa, Las Casas forbade his priests from giving confession to anyone who owned a slave, causing an uproar. Many begged Las Casas for special exceptions. One slave owner told him he was building his house, and after he was finished building it in a few months, he would free his slaves and everything would be fine. But Las Casas would not budge an inch for any excuses or mitigating circumstances. Sadly, this meant that Las Casas became unpopular. So unpopular that he would resign his position at Chiapas, but not before publishing Confessario, where he yet again affirmed priests should deny confession to Spaniards who own slaves until they abandon their ill-gotten gains. Las Casas made one last voyage back to Spain to resign his position as bishop in 1547. Fearing slave owners would pass their slaves on to the next generation, creating a perpetual cycle of bondage, Las Casas redoubled his efforts, writing frantically despite all the hardships and ridicule and hatred he had endured. Charles, moved by Las Casas, while also fearing for his soul, called for all military expansion in the New World to halt until a special council of jurists and theologians examined the arguments for and against conquering the New World. For the first, and probably only time in history, a king ordered a war to cease until it had been proven to be just. That's quite a rare thing. Unsurprisingly, Las Casas represented the side against conquest, while his opponent, Juan Guinez de Sepulveda, an acclaimed scholar and translator of Aristotle, argued in favor of conquest and slavery. Sepulveda had already published Democratis Segunda, where he argued in favor of waging war against the Amer Indians. Both speakers presented their arguments and rebuttals separately, the council met at Ballo de Lide and began by hearing Sepulveda's arguments. Following his Democrats' Segunda closely to justify conquering of the New World and the subjugation and enslavement of natives, 
Sepulbeda believed the Amerindians resembled what Aristotle called slaves by nature, what we already talked about. You know, a person, as Aristotle says, who participates in reason only to the extent of perceiving it, but does not have it. Sepulveda viewed the Amerindians as an inferior species that almost looked like children who ought to be ruled and guided by their colonizing betters. Sepulveda didn't really fully believe the Amerindians were human. They must have been something else. It took Sepulveda about three hours to make his argument where he expressed the Amerindians were not fully human, or at the very minimum, they were at least an inferior breed of human when compared to the Spanish. Las Casas, on the other hand, took a full five days of reading his writings that he would later publish as the Apologetic History of the Indies. In stark contrast to Sepulveda, Las Casas explained that the Bible contradicted the idea of natural slaves in Genesis, where it is written, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, affirming the universality of human nature. Sepulveda's assertion that huge swaths of humanity were mentally deficient contradicted God's design for humans. Since all humans were made in the image of God, who is the supreme intellect, human beings are capable of using reason to interpret and understand the world and discern moral principles. Las Casas wrote, Thus all mankind is one, and all men are alike in what concerns their creation and all natural things. And no one is born enlightened. From this, it follows that all of us must be guided and aided by those who were born before us. All humans are capable of improvement through use of their reason. That means that force and coercion and threats are inappropriate tools to use on humans. Las Casas believed the only way of advancing civilization is through what he calls the method that is proper and natural to man, namely love, gentleness, and kindness. Las Casas' arguments remind me of the first line of the libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia. Individuals have rights, and there are things that no person or group persons may do to them without violating their rights. Threats and violence are ill-suited to humans who are rational by nature and need reasons for why they do things. The jury never reached a conclusive victor, and both Sepulveda and Las Casas claimed victory. Las Casas spent much of the rest of his life in Spain, writing extensively about the cause he had already dedicated the majority of his life to in an effort to save his soul. By 1561, Las Casas moved to a Dominican monastery in Madrid, where he would reside for the rest of his days. He spent his time finishing his history of the Indies and apologetic history, while also writing concerning kingly power, a treatise on the nature and limits of political power. Las Casas outlined his three main political principles. That sounds surprisingly modern. Firstly, all power comes from the people. Secondly, power is vested in rulers to benefit and serve the people. And lastly, all important government decisions require the consent and consultation of the people. With the death of Charles, a much less sympathetic Philip assumed the throne, who had no doubts about the legitimacy of the brutal conquest as long as it yielded profits. As Las Casas neared his death, he must have despaired as the Spanish king turned away from his humane teachings. Las Casas eventually passed away in 1566. He spent the majority of his 81 years fighting for the rights of Indians. He risked his life crossing the Atlantic numerous times, went completely against the dominant belief of his times, and because of it, suffered scorn, mockery, ridicule, threats. All to make up for past misdeeds. His life was dedicated to fighting imperialism and racism, while affirming the basic dignity and rights that ought to be universal to all people. Honestly, I have barely scratched the surface of Las Casas' complicated life and thought. He lived in extremely interesting times, whether he liked it or not, but he rose to the challenge. 
I can think of no other way to describe Las Casas than the humane hero of history. If the questionable Christopher Columbus can have a holiday named after him, I think there's a pretty good argument that there ought to be a Bartolome de las Casas Day, dedicated to celebrating resistance to tyranny and oppression. Thanks, Emil, for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Portraits of Liberty is written and hosted by me, Paul Meany, and produced by Landry Ayers. You can also visit libertarianism.org to find more shows like this. I hope to see you next time.